Okay? Well, Solomon's failure here. Solomon had a harem. David had a harem. Most of these uh, oriental kings and, and sheiks and so forth of the Middle East had harems. And uh, this was a sign of prestige. <clears throat> and the more wives you have, the more glory you have. Uh, we are talking about musicals. If you've seen the musical <clears throat> The King and I, okay, you know how the king of Siam there has multiple wives, and the more, the more powerful he is, uh, the more glory that uh, is uh, reflected in his rule and authority. Um, so in this case as well, Solomon now being the supreme king of the superpower of the world has a harem. And he has multiple wives. You can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven wives? <laughs> How many, David? 700. Each of these represents 100 wives. Okay, 700 wives. How he managed it, I don't know, but he did. And 300 concubines. Okay, as if wives weren't sufficient, he had 300 concubines. So, a thousand women in his harem. How did this come about? The women, many of them, especially the supreme wives, were uh, political marriages, marriages of alliances. And in fact, the supreme wife of Solomon comes from Egypt. She's the daughter of the Pharaoh because Egypt is also, still remains a very powerful empire. And so uh, he establishes uh, an alliance with Egypt and that alliance is sealed by uh, taking the daughter of the Pharaoh. But he has wives from almost all of the countries around the area. And it's, it's showing his might and, and influence and supremacy that he does have all these wives who are princesses uh, from the royal houses of all, all over the region. Okay, But there's a problem with this. What do the wives bring along with them? They're gods, exactly. And remember what God had said about taking possession of the land? Get rid of them and get rid of their gods. As long as they will adhere to these gods, they both have to get rid of. And especially coming into the uh, intimate communion of marriage with them, uh, the law forbade that. Well, Solomon's more interested in international prestige and glory than he is obeying the Lord. So what happens then is uh, he has to build all these shrines and temples uh, of these other gods, even in Jerusalem, to placate and satisfy all of his wives. So you've got all these uh, wives bringing their idols and having their sanctuaries and temples being built. So uh, 1 Kings 11 verse 4 says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, 
and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon himself then is eventually entrapped, not only just tolerating the presence of these other gods and their shrines so that his wives are satisfied, but he himself begins worshiping them. So his wisdom, at least his theological wisdom, uh, has dissipated. Okay, another thing that uh, is problematic about Solomon is that he starts conscripting Israelites for forced labor uh, to his many building projects and so forth. He conscripts them to forced labor. They have no choice. They must do this work for him. And it's especially in the northern territory that he does this, which will bring up some of the animosity that we'll hear once he dies uh, and cause the split between the two kingdoms. Whereas down in Judah, um, it's pretty minimal, and uh, um, there's, there's not the same kind of equity between the north and the south. Okay, so this becomes a heavy burden upon the Israelites, uh, particularly of the north. And uh, they are expected to contribute one month out of three to his um, projects. And to uh, rub salt in the womb, the taskmasters, the ones who are supervising these projects, are foreigners, Phoenicians. Because remember, the Phoenicians are the craftsmen. So it's almost like going back to where they were before in Egypt with foreigners um, being taskmasters over them. So every third month, you were then to uh, assume the position of being a forced slave. These are Israelites, okay? Not, not foreigners. These are Israelites that this is happening to. And so what you have essentially happening here is what Samuel had foretold. It comes to fulfillment in Solomon, fullest fulfillment. What Samuel had said would happen if you have a king. Okay? Um, late in Solomon's reign, because now he is falling away from the Lord, his empire starts to fall apart too, even militarily and uh, politically. The Edomites, some of them rebel, and uh, their rebellion is not um, squelched. So they have some level of independence. The same is true of the Syrians up here in the north. And so uh, it's showing signs here that uh, it can't hold together. And the Lord is not going to hold it together because Solomon has not held on to the Lord. And so you have all of these different uh, dynamics going on here of uh, the multiple wives and their uh, gods and goddesses. You've got uh, the military might, the chariots and the horses and the fortresses and the trade and the fleets and ports and so forth, but also the forced, forced labor. And uh, this will all come to a head once Solomon dies. Okay. Um, any 
questions about the reign of Solomon? The Psalms and the wisdom literature. And this is appropriate as we discuss David and Solomon because David is associated with the Psalms and wrote uh, many, if not most, of the Psalms. Solomon is associated with wisdom and wrote much of what we call the wisdom literature in the um, Old Testament. Okay, so first of all, Psalms. And here you have the picture of David with his lyre. Um, the word in the Hebrew for Psalms is tahilim. And uh, this means songs of praise. Okay? So uh, the association with the Psalms are that they are songs, songs of praise. And um, so the book of Psalms then becomes kind of the hymn book of Israel uh, with, with many songs. In the Greek, uh, the translation of the Hebrew to the Greek, the Septuagint, which is typically symbolized here by the LXX Roman numerals for 70. Um, the word is psalmoi, and these are songs sung to stringed instru instruments. So uh, the typical instrument that was used in ancient Israel was stringed instrument like the harp, the lyre, uh, even like something similar to a guitar. In terms of the authorship, most of the Psalms uh, claim authorship by David, okay? But there are others as well. There are even some Psalms from Moses, like uh, Psalm 90 in the Psalms, but uh, uh, primarily from David. David's the primary author of the Psalms. And they are divided up into a hundred and 50, a total of 150 psalms or 150 songs, uh, organized according to five divisions, which are called books in themselves. So the Psalter, the book of Psalms itself, is a library, if you will, of especially five song books. Uh, and they're not equally divided up into 30 psalms each of the five song books. Uh, it's not necessary for you, for the purposes of this class or the exam, to know the breakdown of the five, okay, of, in terms of which psalms are with which book. Uh, but it is important for you to recognize the division into five books of the psalms. Okay. Um, so the Psalter here, the book of psalms, has a special... Uh, significance and importance for the worship that's taken place at the temple. And so it's often associated with the temple. Uh, the people obviously did not go into the temple building itself, but there were various courtyards in which the people could go and songs would be or offered up, corporate songs would be sung. Uh, the psalms could also be used for personal use, um, although not many people could have written copies, but psalms could be memorized and uh, uh, used for personal devotional use and later in the synagogue. Uh, the psalm types, there are various types. Uh, there's the general category of the lament, individual laments, okay? 
and then also community laments. Okay, and um, uh, this is the majority of the psalms are laments, as we'll see here, demonstrated the data here later. They're pleas for relief from suffering, for protection, for danger, from against danger, uh, help when suffering guilt, and so uh, uh, they are uh, meant to, to uh, seek consolation. An example is Psalm 13. Psalm 13, a lament here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Uh, how long shall my enemy be ex exalted over me? That's kind of characteristic of a lament. And uh, these are wonderful resources for us to use in our times of trouble, in our times of sorrow. Um, personally, I have used these lament psalms uh, in those times. And it's uh, consoling to know that God has placed this in his word uh, for us as a, a resource. Uh, when we find it hard to express our pain and our sorrow, that we can use words that he has given to us to communicate to him uh, those laments. Okay, uh, there are also praise psalms. Uh, those individuals from individual, David himself might offer praise. And then corporate praise, community praise, uh, where the whole community uh, chants together uh, praise to the Lord. Uh, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Okay, so uh, praise. Uh, there are creation hymns. Uh, these are hymns that um, celebrate God's creative work and the glory of creation. And then there are hymns of historical praise as well, praising him for the work that he has done in the history of Israel. And these are typically narrations of salvation history. Um, certainly including the exodus out of Egypt and the gift of the law at Sinai. Uh, there are psalms of praise for Jerusalem itself. Uh, these are called the songs of Zion. Okay? Uh, Zion is, is another term frequently used for Jerusalem. Um, it's Mount Zion is the hill upon which the temple is built, so sometimes it can be an expression referring to the temple, but it's, it's really the community of God, the people of God. And uh, when the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, then speaks of Zion, it's not speaking of the geographical location, uh, but it's talking about the community of God, the church, the people of God, the chosen people, the holy people. Uh, also praise for the Jerusalem temple, okay? 
Um, an example of this would be Psalm 121. A song of ascents. And this is a song that was sung as people would, the pilgrims, especially for the religious festivals, would ascend up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the highlands, and so people would ascend. And so it was as they're coming close to Jerusalem and especially ascending to Mount Zion to the temple there. Um, I lift up my hills to the, my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the hills here are just not any old hills. It's not just like the Rocky Mountains uh, in Estes Park, you know, although this can apply to that too, you know, in, in, in an indirect way. But directly this was referring to Mount Zion okay, and to the hills upon which Jerusalem was built and the temple was built. And then also for the Davidic dynasty, uh, for the dynasty of, of David. Uh, classic example here is Psalm 2. Title there given by the editors, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay. And then it, it's, it speaks of the Lord declaring uh, his king to be his son. Ultimately, this is a messianic song, psalm referring to Jesus, and the New Testament interprets it thusly. But uh, originally, it was also a, a song, psalm of praise for the Davidic dynasty, for the king and his rule. Okay, uh, praise also for the law, okay, and for the gift of wisdom. And the psalm that is most readily associated with praise for the law is Psalm 119. Psalm, Psalm 119. Might be good just to turn to that. This is the longest psalm. By the way, the Psalter is the longest book in the Bible. Okay. Um, it's the largest of, of all the 66 books of the Bible. But uh, you can see that Psalm 119 goes on for pages. And it's also what is called an acrostic psalm. That in the Hebrew, it's organized according to the Hebrew alphabet. And so you even see that. You've got the beginning of 119, Aleph. That's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then right before verse 9, Beth, the second letter, just before verse 17, Gimel, the third. So it's an acrostic, but it is um, uh, a psalm of praise for the gift of the Torah, of the law.
And then also uh, uh, prayers, songs for deliverance. Deliverance from sickness and also the threat of imminent death. So they're supplications. Okay. So you've got laments, you've got praise and thanksgiving, and thanksgiving for various gifts that God has given, including Jerusalem, Zion, the temple, uh, the, the Davidic dynasty, uh, God's Torah, wisdom, and then also petition, supplication, request, uh, deliverance. So these are the major types of the book of Psalms. Uh, what I have here, we're just going to go through uh, so that you can just get the impression on this. But uh, these are the Psalms numbered, and you can see the different uh, categories for them. Uh, but the point I want you to see is how the majority of them are in this first category, lament. The second category is praise. Um, and uh, individual praise and, and so forth. So the first most frequent is lament and then praise. But just look at how many there are in these earlier. Uh, same here, a few more praise hymns here, but primarily lament. Certainly a lot of lament in this section. Uh, some more. Then you get uh, in Psalms 93 and thereafter a lot of the royal psalms, okay? And then uh, in the latter third, uh, you begin to pick up more of the praise hymns. And especially as you come to the end, uh, the majority of them are praise hymns, okay? So just to, to, to illustrate to you that, and uh, that's the correction then that needs to be made in that handout that we had earlier, that the most predominant, the most dominant type is not the praise and thanksgiving, it is the lament. Okay, so the most common types of psalms, the lament, um, over one-third of the psalms are laments. Secondly, praise and thanksgiving. Some of the characteristics of the psalms are that they are songs, and so since they're sung, uh, the um, stylistic dynamic is primarily that of uh, rhythm and meter, um, not rhyme, even in the Hebrew. Uh, primarily rhythm, meter, as you'd find in most poetry and um, hymnic uh, genres. A lot of parallelism, repetition, uh, just like songs have, okay? Uh, think of praise songs today, how much repetition <laughs> there is in praise songs, but even in our hymns. Hymns will have refrains uh, that are repeated and a lot of parallelism. Uh, these were many times designed to be chanted antiphonally, especially the praise psalms. Laments, not so much, but the praise ones would be chanted antiphonally. Uh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Okay, 
So uh, one side, uh, one chorus would do part, and then the other side would respond, the antiphonal response there. Uh, the tunes are oftentimes identified, and you can see these at the beginning of, of many of the, the psalms. Um, sung to the tune of, uh, I'm not finding one offhand here, but uh, okay, uh, for example, Psalm 80, to the choir master, uh, according to the lilies. So there was a melody that was entitled, according to the lilies. We don't know what that melody is, though we have uh, no way of knowing what the musical notation was. <coughs> and lastly, uh, the character of these uh, psalms is that they are not timid. Um, at all. They are bold. Uh, uh, the music was to be played boldly and loudly. Uh, Psalm 33, verse 3, play skillfully on loud instruments. Uh, 98, point uh, verse 4, make a loud voice and rejoice. Psalm 150, praise him on loud cymbals. Uh, now there's also the propriety of some of them, especially the laments and so forth that are more somber. But um, uh, they are not timid. Uh, the God's people are not to be uh, silent or songless saints here. Now, something I think needs to be said about the theological character of the Psalms. Uh, they are very much a declaration of the relationship between Yahweh and his people. And so they are expressions of that relationship, and especially of the covenant. And there's a lot of covenant language that is found in these psalms. Uh, they are reverent. I mean, they acknowledge God and his holiness and his majesty. And yet, they're very intimate uh, that in this covenant relationship, one can address God and pour out one's heart to God and entrust oneself to God. Um, in this binding covenant relationship. So there's this real sense of intimacy and personal connectedness. Another characteristic uh, that is, I think, theologically significant is that the Psalms are part of the written scripture, God's word, his revelation to us, but they are also prayers of God's people to God. So they're both. Okay? Originally, they were primarily written as prayers to God, from a human to God, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's still God's word to us, and then continued uh, preserved and, and um, read and uh, spoken God's word to us. Okay, so it's both of those. In Lutheran language, we would say that there is a sacramental aspect and a sacrificial aspect. Through the Psalms, God delivers to us his gifts of grace through his word. But then, that's the sacramental, but it's also sacrificial. The Psalms guide us to offer up the response of praise or of uh, lament, of petition, whatever. And Martin Luther called the Psalms a Bible in miniature because they contain the theology of all the rest of the Bible. But uh, that theology is made 
uh, very, very practical and applicable in the Psalms. Um, the old adage, um, lex orandi, lex credendi, Latin, uh, which really means that which you pray is what you believe. And the Psalms reflect this very much. Uh, what is prayed, what is sung, what is uh, offered up is really the confession of faith. It's our theology. So the Psalms do that for us. Noteworthy Psalms, okay? This is uh, cheat, cheat for you here. Uh, these are some of the Psalms that are on the exam uh, that you need to be able to recognize. Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, okay? And the metaphor used in this Psalm is the tree planted by waters. Uh, that thrives. And uh, take a look at the psalm at your leisure. We don't have time to do so here. But it essentially sets this tone of the contrast between the blessedness of the righteous person who meditates on God's word, whose life is formed and filled by God's word, against the wicked who God will bring judgment upon. So that contrast, Psalm 1. Psalm 22, uh, the psalm that is messianic. It comes off the lips of Jesus himself when he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, it's a prefiguring of the experience of Christ on the cross, uh, which Jesus himself associated with the crucifixion. Certainly Psalm 23, hopefully you already know this psalm, uh, if not by memory, at least in terms of its substance and content. And so there may be lines from Psalm 23 that uh, uh, you'll be able, need to identify as uh, from this particular psalm. Psalm 46, uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help time of trouble, okay? Um, uh, be still and know that I am God. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The God of um, uh, Israel is our fortress. And uh, this was the psalm that was especially endeared to Luther uh, in the struggles that he had. And uh, um, was the basis of his battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So Psalm 46. Psalm 119 that we've always already taken a look at, love for God's Torah. Uh, love for it because of its great value, both inherently because it is God's word, but practically because of the practical benefit that it brings to our lives in guiding us. Psalm 136 is most important because it is probably the most representative psalm of a refrain that is heard over and over through many psalms. Uh, the Lord's mercy endures forever. Uh, the, his chesed, uh, his covenant love, his steadfast love endures forever. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Okay? Any comments on the Psalms? Um, the Psalms, perhaps, are the most used book of the Bible. Um, really a favorite to many. Uh, perhaps one of the reasons is because it really addresses the heart as well as the mind. Um, okay. And besides the book of Isaiah, it's the most quoted book in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, and it's the most quoted of any Old Testament source by Jesus himself, the Psalms are. Now we move on to wisdom literature which includes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. Just a, a brief introduction to this genre of wisdom literature. The purpose of wisdom literature is essentially to provide instructions for successful living, especially the, the genre of Proverbs, literary type of Proverbs but then also to provide reflection on the perplexities of human life, which are typically couched then as monologues or dialogues. You think of like Ecclesiastes, which is a monologue, uh, or a dialogue such as you find in the book of Job. Okay? So these are the two types and their purposes. Wisdom literature uh, was a common genre in the ancient Near East. Uh, we have examples of it going back to 2500 BC in Egypt. Okay? And uh, uh, there are wise men who served in this professional capacity uh, throughout the Middle East in many of these various uh, oriental um, uh, royal contexts. The wise men would then advise the king so they served a professional role here. Uh, later on, Daniel uh, is, achieves this status as a wise man to the king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and his successor, uh, the, the Persian uh, Darius. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, you can look at that at your leisure. It gives kind of a general description of a wise man, what his role, what his responsibility was. Okay? What is distinctive about biblical wisdom literature, however, which sets it apart from that general uh, mass of material of wisdom literature in the ancient Near East, is this. That true wisdom proceeds from a faith relationship with Yahweh. So it's this covenant relationship of faith, sola fide. Even the wisdom literature is grounded in <laughs> this central article of doctrine, justification by grace alone through faith alone, that faith relationship. Regularly in the wisdom literature, faith is described as the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. And this is not a, you know, terror of God. It's a proper respect for God, uh, homage to him, 
but also then a relationship of love uh, with him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And a reception of his gifts. And this is the beginning of wisdom. This is where it all starts. So there are various uh, literary types, okay? Poetic parallelism, parallelism comparisons and contrasts. Um, we see this a lot of times, once again, even kind of Psalm 1 is in the genre of wisdom literature because it contrasts the righteous and the wicked. And this is very, very characteristic of wisdom literature, especially the proverbial type, contrasting the righteous with the wicked or the wise man and the fool. And so uh, on the exam, you, you probably have examples. And if it looks like a contrast, <laughs> okay, uh, it's probably wisdom literature and probably a, a, a proverb here unless it's Psalm 1, which you should be able to recognize. Various parables, allegories, riddles are given, and uh, contemplative discourses such as Ecclesiastes. Okay, so uh, this is here the symbol from the crossways uh, graphics of wisdom, the lamp. Your word is a lamp to my feet, light to my path here. Wisdom is a light to our path. And oftentimes, wisdom literature speaks about paths, the paths that we go. And again, it's oftentimes the contrast. Which path will you take? Will you take the path of obedience to God? Okay, And uh, this is the crossway symbol for the two arrows, one arrow going to others, one arrow going up to God, loving God, loving others, really the fear of the Lord. Or will you follow the path of selfish sin? Man turned in on himself of disobedience. So this is characteristic of the literature. Which path will you take? Um, there's also oftentimes the question of whether you will follow the way of obedience to God's will and his law, his covenant, or seek after material prosperity. Okay. Which choice will you take? Which do you value more? Which is your priority? Okay. So in terms of the Proverbs, uh, the general, I mean the definition of a proverb of, from the scriptures is essentially this. It is a general truth arrived at from godly observation that can direct future action when considered in the fear of the Lord. General truth arrived at from godly observation that can direct future action when considered in the fear of the Lord. So note a couple of things here. It's general truth. So it covers what life is like 95% of the time, but it's not absolute. Okay? There can be exceptions, but generally speaking, this is what's going to happen. And it's arrived at from godly observation. Uh, this can come from what Melanchthon called the righteousness of reason. Um, and much of what you have in the wisdom literature is, is just kind of a common sense. 
but it's common sense that's considered in the fear of the Lord, so we'd call it sanctified common sense. Um, but it's, many of it is just first article stuff that you can see kind of how God has hardwired the world and hardwired relationships and society to work. So it covers what is generally true, but not absolutely all the time true. So some themes here of the book of Proverbs. Uh, the priority in your life should be your relationship with God. Okay. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that beginning means not just the commencement point, but it means the first place, the priority. Secondly, one's relationship with God is reflected in one's lifestyle. Uh, your character and behavior. That's where um, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, thirdly, the tr true color of your faith is manifest most in the context of home and work. So there are so many of these uh, proverbs that deal with how do you relate to family, to parents, to father, to mother, um, and then also in your everyday common workplace. As Lutherans, we would say it's addressing how we carry out our vocations, the various vocations that God calls us to as son, daughter, father, mother, citizen, uh, employer, employee. And fourthly then, the theme is one's decisions have consequences. Uh, there will be consequences uh, that result from the decisions you make, from the path that you take. Okay, for the exam, there will be examples of proverbs. Okay, and so it will look like this, and it'll probably be multiple choice. It will quote and have multiple choice, and you are to identify, and one of the options will be proverbs. If you see something that is a contrast, it's probably going to be a proverb especially the contrast between, again, the wise man and the fool. Examples like this. Wise men store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. Or the truly righteous man attains life, but he who pursues evil goes to his death. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. In terms of interpreting the Proverbs, uh, we come back to that definition of a general truth arrived at from godly observation that can direct future action. Since it's a general truth, again, as we said before, it's probably about 95% going to happen. But there are always exceptions. There's always that other 5%. And so Proverbs are not promises. This is one error in hermeneutics with the Proverbs oftentimes. People take them as promises but they're general principles. One of the classic examples is the proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. A lot of people take that as a promise. And then I, in my pastoral practice, I've had to deal with this, with parents whose children go astray, and uh, they have heard, and they oftentimes cite this passage and say, well, I must not have train them right. Well, in my pastoral observation of those parents, they did. 
Uh, and, and the interesting thing is they'll have one child who is very faithful and another one who turns aside from the Lord. They raised them both the same. Okay. So it's a general principle, but it's not an absolute promise. Okay. So it's a, not a guarantee, but a general reality. Not automatic, but likely. Okay, so that's the Proverbs. Uh, next we come to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the authorship is identified in chapter 1, verse 1. The author is identified as the preacher, Hebrew, Kohalet. And uh, he also claims to be the son of Solomon, the son of David, I'm sorry, here. Uh, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so the question is, is this Solomon? Traditionally, it's been attributed to him. Um, quite possibly, even likely, it is him. But there are some who question this, and it's not an issue of uh, denying uh, the truthfulness of Scripture if, if you don't necessarily believe Solomon was the author. Uh, the term son of David can be a more general term, such as a descendant of David or even a follower of the, the teachings of David. Okay. So, um, the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to provide a search for the meaning of life. And the preacher here examines all angles of life, knowledge, books, work, pleasure. Okay, what is really the meaning? What should I strive for? What, what's going to be really of value in life? Wealth, power, lust, wine, women, song, whatever. Uh, so he examines all these different options to find where the true meaning is. And so he struggles then with the meaning of life, the purpose of life. And so one of the most familiar uh, refrains and one that you should be <laughs> recognizing here for the um, exam. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's a refrain you hear over and over in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, his exasperation of trying to find what is the meaning and purpose of life. Uh, another very, very recognizable section here is from chapter 3. Uh, where he says, "There's a for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the under heaven." And uh, those of us who are older age, we remember the birds singing this song from back in the '60s. Um, but it's speaking here of um, there is an order in creation and in reality, and there is a purpose. So he begins saying there is no purpose, but then he begins saying there is. Now, there is a time. There is a purpose for everything. Okay. Uh, in his examination here, his quest, the preacher uh, comes to the conclusion uh, that is good theology here. Paul quotes this in the book of Romans, actually. Uh, that there's nothing inherently good in, in and of ourselves. Okay, so if we're seeking for goodness and purpose and meaning, 
if we look inside ourselves, uh, that's going to be a dead-end dead search. Because he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Finally, uh, the, the conclusion that you have here in the book of Ecclesiastes is that you won't find meaning in life. The search for meaning in life is futile if done only under the sun. Under the sun that is apart from God. Uh, just purely, you know, secular. God's out of the picture. Heaven is not a reality. If, if everything is just under the sun without God in the picture, it is futile and vanity. Uh, without God, all is ultimately meaningless. But with God, there is hope. So trust God. And he says in the very last verses of Ecclesiastes here, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And again, remember what wisdom literature understands fear, the fear of the Lord to be. It's not only reverence, it's, it's both, um, you know, uh, re repentance to God, being in an attitude, a heart of repentance to God, but also it's receiving the gospel gifts of, of God, his mercy and grace. Okay, in terms of Job here, uh, Job deals with the suffering of the righteous in lengthy poetic utterances. This is why it is wisdom literature. It's primarily not narrative, although there is a story behind it. But it's primarily not narrative. It is monologue and dialogue where Job contemplates, in a sense, why do bad things happen to good people? The author, we don't know who it was. Location is a place called Uz which is in the Transjordan. And uh, the time, we don't know either, but an early period, probably from the patriarchs to the judges. And Job was originally uh, a righteous man. He had seven sons and three daughters, 10 children, fairly wealthy. Uh, but the Satan, the accuser, comes before God's throne and essentially says, well, why shouldn't Job? Um, bless you and be faithful to you. Uh, you're a sugar daddy to him, Yahweh. You're giving him everything that he wants. Um, take it away and he'll curse you. So it's essentially a challenge that the devil gives to the Lord uh, that, uh, um, that Job will curse you if, if you take away his blessing. And so God does. His children are killed. His flocks are stolen. Um, everything is taken from him. He gets boils and sickness. And he is then counseled by three, quote, unquote, friends. And their counsel is not very good, not very wise. Um, mainly just, you did something wrong. You better figure out what it was and repent. Um, kind of a theology of, of of glory, that the reason this is happening is because of something wrong you did. Finally, God, at the end of the Job, confronts him and uh, uh, essentially says, we don't, you don't have to know the answer. 
why bad things happen to good people. Um, who are you to question me? Uh, were you the one who flung out the stars and the galaxies? Have you created the Leviathan, uh, the mighty creatures? Uh, who are you to tell me how I'm to run my universe? I have my own purposes, and sometimes my purposes are hidden from you. All you are called to do is trust me. You don't have to know the reasons. And that's wisdom. Sometimes we don't know. And as a pastor or a, a church worker, people are going to ask you, why did God do this? Sometimes the worst thing you can do is say, well, it was because of this or because of that. Or God must be doing this. That's like Job's counselors, his friends. But instead, sometimes we just say, God's will is hidden from us, but we cling to him, we trust him anyway. Um, by the way, and I need to highlight this, um, Job's wife is here as well, simply because it's a possibility on the competency exam. Uh, she was not very supportive of him <laughs> through this ordeal. Uh, she gives this counsel to Job. Why don't you just curse God and die? <laughs> so uh, just because that might come up in the exam. Job's wife is not very supportive. In the end, though, Job's fortunes are um, um, restored. Okay. But the lesson is learned. Um, we just can't always give pat answers to why God allows certain things to happen, especially to his righteous people. Okay. Uh, one last thing here. A very important quote in Job is this one, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And it's an expression of his hope. He says that despite, if I may be slain by the Lord, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I will stand upon the earth. And in my own flesh, I will see God. So it is a confession of faith in the ultimate hope that we have of the resurrection. And this is, in the Old Testament, could be going back to the patriarchal period, confession of faith in the resurrection. And of course, it's used frequently at Easter time as a text, too. Okay, um, so that's the wisdom literature. Uh, we don't have time yet for the Song of Solomon, so we'll have to pick that up next week.